1: Welcome, my friends, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, we are on the air here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, Alan Dempsey, the engineer, gets us on the air. And Andrew Herdliska produces this show every weekend. And it's really a wonderful pleasure uh, to catch up with Jeff Kinley up in the mountains of Arkansas. President of Main Thing Ministries. His new book is out, Interview with the Antichrist. And what a read it is. Jeff, welcome. How are you?
2: I'm doing great, Pat. Thank you. Good
1: to be with you again. What's the background on this book?
2: Well, it's it's really an innovative, uh, sort of compelling novel that I decided to write in light of the fact that uh, there's so many things happening in the world today. There's so much uncertainty. There's so much volatility going on. So I wanted to sort of fast forward and bring people into this imaginary world of what might be when the actual Antichrist rises to power. And so uh, I wrote this novel for folks to really get into You know, people respond to story, and a lot of millennials are reading historical fiction these days and that type of thing. So I wanted to give them uh, that story, but also lead them to the actual truth. And so in the back of the book, that's when I have these 30 questions that I answer about the Antichrist from the Scriptures.
1: Ever since the early church, Christians have thought they were in the end times. Uh, is today any different?
2: Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, in First John 2.18, John told the, the, the uh, readers of his letter there that we are living in the last hour. And so really technically since the first century, Pat, we've been in the last days. But I think that in the last 50 to 60 years, you know, we've really seen things ramp up in the world, and we're seeing really the mirror images of, of what we're going to see in the book of Revelation. So there are signs and there are emerging signs in our culture and in the world uh, that tell us that we are living in the end time. So in that sense, I believe uh, it is different because we are actually living in sort of the last days of the last days. And of course, we, uh, the nation Israel uh, becoming uh, one again and becoming a nation, living in the land is certainly the super sign of the end time. So uh, so, yes, I think even more than ever, in fact, 41% of American adults that believe we're living in the end times and among evangelicals, among Christians, that, that number is up to 77%. So there's a lot of indications, both internally and externally, that we're in that day. Uh,
1: I want you to expand on this uh, thought that one of the Antichrist goals is to destroy the Jewish people. Uh, can you tell us more?
2: Absolutely. You know, Satan has always hated the Jews. Uh, he hates the Jews all the way from Genesis chapter 3, uh, in verse 15, where God predicted that from the seed of a woman uh, would come someone who had crushed the head of the serpent. Uh, through the Jews came, of course, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Uh, through the Jews came the scriptures, uh, the promise of salvation. And so there's always been this ongoing hatred. And Pat, when we fast forward to the book of Revelation, we see that that hatred, that anti-Semitism, uh, gets to a boiling point and tells us in Revelation 12 that the devil is enraged with the Jewish nation, and he goes after them full force. And so uh, he hates the Jews because uh, they're the chosen people, and through the Jews came the Messiah. And eventually, through the Jews will come the second coming of the Messiah as well, and so that would uh, certainly impede upon his ability to reign through the world through the Antichrist. And so for that reason and many more, he, is, he has this uh, this annoying hatred— Uh, for Jewish people. We see that today in anti-Semitism across the world uh, that really is enjoying a resurgence right now, and it's going to reach a boiling point during this time that Revelation describes.
1: Jeff Kinley is with us. Uh, His book is called Interview with the Antichrist. Uh, Why do you believe, Jeff, it's more likely the Antichrist will be a Gentile?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, people have speculated could the Antichrist be a Jew? Could he be a Muslim? I think when you look at Revelation, it says Revelation 13 says this beast, this Antichrist, comes up out of the sea, and when we look forward in Revelation, many passages in the book of Revelation explain itself, and chapter 17, verse 15, refers to that sea as being Gentile nations, so there's that contextual uh, relationship there, but also, Pat, he rules over a a Gentile kingdom. A Jew probably wouldn't be doing that during a time of great anti-Semitism. Uh, The Bible says that the Antichrist will enter the Jewish temple that will be rebuilt uh, in the end times and proclaim himself to be God, uh, this abomination of desolation that Jesus talked about. And so uh, that's unlikely for it to be a Jew. So all signs really point to the Antichrist being a Gentile.
1: Explain this to us. Um, Is the Antichrist a specific individual, or is it a system of rules?
2: Well, there have been many people who have postulated that the Antichrist could be a symbol of evil in the end times, uh, perhaps even a government system type thing. I think what we have to do, Pat, is just go back to the Scripture and say, what does the Bible say about him? And five times in the New Testament it refers to this this individual called the Antichrist. Each time it refers to a real person. Uh, It calls him a man, calls him a son, uh, uses uh, male pronouns, calls him a prince, and so there are many indications in Scripture that point to him being an actual individual. And even though the word Antichrist is only mentioned five times, uh, the word beast, which is another symbol of his uh, of his power, is mentioned 36 times in Revelation. And you might be surprised to know to that other than Jesus Christ, the Antichrist is mentioned more in Scripture than any other individual as it relates to the end times. More than a hundred passages pointing to him. So I think all that really dovetails into. Uh, an interpretation that lets us know that he is going to be an actual man.
1: Now, here's um, an interesting little uh, observation. Uh, The Bible describes him as showing no regard for the desire of women. Uh, What do you think that means?
2: Well, it's from Daniel uh, chapter 11, verse 37, and it says that exact phrase, he won't have any desire uh, for women. So people say, well, could that mean he is a, a homosexual? Well, if you continue reading in the context there, uh, it talks about the fact that he will magnify himself above uh, all other powers and will dominate other other uh, military mights. And so the context there seems to indicate that it's making a contrast that he basically has no desire for women because his chief desire is power, his chief desire is, is military might and to rule over others. Now, it's possible that he could be a homosexual, uh, but the, the context seems to indicate that his mistress, if you will, is his uh, military mind To dominate the world is really his passion, even over a relationship or the sexual desire.
1: Uh, Jeff, tell us, what is the apostasy, the falling away from the faith, and how does that play into the end times?
2: Well, it's very interesting. There's a fascinating prophecy that Paul, that the apostle Paul gives in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he says that the Antichrist cannot be revealed until uh, the apostasy comes first, uh, or, or the end times rather, uh, the apostasy will come first. And so there's this falling away. The word apostasy in the scripture uh, just means to, uh, to break away from or, or to fall away from. And basically it's talking about that, the, the fact that the world, and specifically in the church, too, will fall away from the orthodoxy uh, of Christian beliefs or Judeo-Christian values. And uh, and when that happens, uh, the Antichrist will then have the freedom to, to be uh, revealed. And I think we're seeing that apostasy right now in the church. We're seeing it all across the world where we're uh, basically excising God from our culture. And so that falling away, I think, is going to be a, an ignoring of the faith, a misrepresenting of the faith, a reimagining of the Bible and of morality and that type of thing. I think in that sense, we're sort of mirroring Noah's generation. So uh, I think Christians would be interested to know that that the end times cannot come uh, until this apostasy comes and the man of lawlessness, the Bible calls the Antichrist, will be revealed. That's how we know we're living in the last seven years of planet Earth. Uh,
1: Jeff, what do you think will happen to the United States during the rise of the Antichrist?
2: Well, I wrote a book a few years ago called uh, The End of America? Uh, Bible Prophecy in a Country in Crisis, and in that book I I talk about uh, where is America in Bible prophecy. Uh, There's a very important dramatic event that Scripture talks about that is coming uh, that we believe in called the rapture of the Church, uh, where Jesus basically will rescue his bride before God releases his wrath on the planet, and that event where perhaps hundreds of millions of people will be taken from planet Earth. That will have a dramatic impact on the United States because we have been such a Christian nation. Uh, There's uh, upwards estimates of of, uh, 30 million or more Christians in America, and if that were to happen, 30 million people removed from every aspect of culture would have a dramatic impact economically, militarily, socially, morally, and every other way, governmentally. And so I think that America will be greatly reduced in her power, I don't think she's going to be a world power anymore uh, after this event happens. And, um, and because of that, we would open ourselves up to attack, uh, uh, being dependent on foreign aid, and perhaps even being absorbed into another nation. So,
1: My guest is Jeff Kinley. He's in Arkansas. The book, Interview with the Antichrist. We've got more right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5 The Word in Orlando. Jeff Kinley is with us, president of Main Thing Ministries, author of Interview with the Antichrist. The book is just out. It's quite a read. Uh, Jeff, you write that the Antichrist kingdom will be political, economic, and religious. So uh, what are these things going to look like? What's the story here?
2: Well, the Bible says that that the last seven years, call the tribulation period uh, that we read about in Revelation, begins with a peace treaty or a covenant uh, that, uh, that the Antichrist signs with Israel. Interesting in the news uh, recently is uh, Trump's peace plan, and really every president since Nixon has tried to bring peace to the Middle East, and, and they've all failed. Uh, well, Antichrist, according to the Bible, will not fail, and so there'll be this political kingdom uh, that he will be able to rise up from. Uh, the Bible describes it in terms of a ten-nation coalition. Uh, some people think that will be some form of a European Union uh, or some other form uh, of that kingdom, but he'll lead this alliance, and, and the Bible talks about it being a revived Roman Empire. So there'll be a political rule uh, where he rises to power after, I believe, the rapture, during the chaos and calamity of that time period, but also uh, a religious rule as well and economic. Uh, the Bible talks about in Revelation chapter 13. you probably heard that the term 666 or the mark of the beast. And and that'll be a part of his economic program uh, because that basically that mark will enable a person to buy and sell. In fact, no one will be able to buy and sell without the mark of the beast. And so there'll be an economic unity that'll come across the world that he will enact, enabling every person to participate uh, in transactions and in the economy. And those who refuse to take that mark will be uh, will be beheaded, will be executed. And so there's also the religious part of it as well. Uh, the Bible says that that midpoint and three-and-a-half-year period of the tribulation that the Antichrist will enter the Jewish temple, proclaim himself to be God, and demand that the world worship him. Uh, so in effect, those who take this mark on their right hand or their forehead uh, will be uh, not only free to, to uh, shop and to buy and to sell, but also they'll obligate themselves to worship the Antichrist. So you sort of have that, that tripart uh leadership that the Antichrist will, will enact, the political, the economic, and the religious.
1: Uh, Jeff, if Satan knows God's plans, it's obvious he must also know his own end. Do you think he thinks he can be victorious against God? Do you think he can triumph?
2: You know, it's very interesting, Pat, as we read about in the Bible, you see in uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, the fall of Satan from heaven. Uh, Once he was expelled from heaven, the first thing he did was to try to to overcome mankind, which he did in the garden through the deception of Adam and Eve. But ever since then, he's still tried to rule the world. Uh, We see it uh, in Nimrod and in Genesis, we see it through the pharaohs, we see it through modern-day rulers like Hitler and Saddam Hussein, people who try to, to, uh, to rise up and rule the world. And I think, it really, it boils down to he, he's very self-deceived, and uh, he believes that he can overcome God. Even, we read the, the end of Revelation, Pat, where he gathers the armies of the world, and the Bible says they assemble to fight God. And so even then, even after all his defeats, even at the cross, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of his massive defeats, he still believes that somehow he can fight against God and the end. And so that's part of that self-deception uh, that is inherent within the evil that the Antichrist and, and that Satan himself uh, bears.
1: Uh, Jeff, teach us about the mark of the beast. What do you want us to know? Well, we can find it in
2: Revelation uh, chapter chapter 13. I think a lot of people have fears of the mark of the beast, but just to uh, to give a little bit of comfort uh, to your listeners, uh, the Bible tells us that no believer in Jesus Christ will ever take the mark of the beast. That's Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4. Uh, this mark is meant to identify the worshiper of the Antichrist, the worshiper of Satan himself, and as I said earlier, to, to identify those who can be approved to buy to it itself. Uh, scripture tells us it's going to be on the right hand or on the forehead, Uh, People have speculated, could this be uh, radio frequency identification chips, these microchips that people are putting in their hands right now? And certainly there could be some form of technology related to that. Uh, But we don't know exactly what this mark's going to be, but something about that mark will identify you as a worshiper of the Antichrist and also uh, being able to buy and sell. But again, I caution uh, listeners to understand that only those uh, who take that mark uh, will be identified with the Antichrist. No believer in Jesus Christ will be uh, able
1: to take that mark. Now, <clears throat> now Jeff, I want you to uh, get to this topic. What happens to those who do or do not take the mark?
2: Yeah. Well, Revelation chapter 14 tells us that only those who, uh, whose eventual destiny uh, is hell, is, is damnation, will receive that mark and it says that no one who receives the mark will later repent of receiving the mark. So in essence, it seals their fate uh, at that point. Those who refuse to take the mark, uh, there'll be severe penalty, because Satan demands uh, absolute 100% loyalty through the Antichrist, and it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, that, that they're going to bring back the practice of beheading Again, And I know that sounds very barbaric and very bizarre, uh, and yet in the end times there are going to be a lot of barbaric practices uh, that take place, and so those who do not receive the mark will be executed.
1: Why why is the tribulation period a time of supernatural miracles and signs?
2: That's a great question, and, you know, we're currently living in a time we're not seeing people rise from the dead, we're not seeing supernatural signs in the sky— but the Bible tells us that in that last seven-year period, there's going to be uh, an, an abundance of supernatural activity. And I think it's going to come from two places. It's going to come from God, and because Scripture talks about in Revelation 6 through 19, there's going to be a series of supernatural judgments unleashed on the planet in the forms of sealed trumpet and bowl judgments, signs in the sky, cataclysmic occurrences, but also from Satan himself. Uh, scripture tells us in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, that the Antichrist will be able to perform signs and false wonders to deceive the world. And so he'll actually have supernatural power to do that. He'll bring down signs from heaven, fire from heaven, and he'll do that to authenticate his claims of being God. And the Bible says he will persuade billions uh, to his cause. And so, yes, from God there'll be supernatural activity, from Satan there'll be supernatural activity, and it'll be a wild time to live.
1: Are there current prophecies preparing for the Antichrist appearing?
2: I think so, uh, because as you read forward in Revelation, you find out, and from Daniel and also from Second Thessalonians, you find out that there will be a Jewish temple rebuilt in the end times. Well, <laughs> it's very interesting that uh, one of the priorities of the three uh, Jewish candidates for prime minister is they all believe and they all intend to help rebuild the Jewish temple. Uh, there's the Jewish uh, Temple Institute, which was established in 1987, They've already drawn up blueprints for the temple. They're practicing sacrifices. They're training priests. They're sewing garments together, uh, priestly garments. And so that's just one of the signs that are emerging. They're just sitting on the ready. They're sitting uh, waiting for the permission to build their temple on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem. I believe the Antichrist Peace Treaty will help them do that in the end times. Uh, Of course, as I said earlier, the, the sign of the age is Israel becoming a nation again. And none of these end-time events can really happen unless Israel is in the land and living peacefully, and they're in the land right now.
1: Jeff, where did you come up with the idea uh, to interview the Antichrist? Uh, what, what, what prompted that?
2: Well, Pat, my passion has always been to communicate biblical truth uh, to this generation in a language that they understand, and, and I have a special heart for millennials and for those who are in the next generation knowing that they really love a story and a compelling story. Uh, I wrote this uh, fiction novel to really captivate their attention, to create scenarios, almost like a movie script, to see you know, what could it be like during the time of the Antichrist. So I wrote that to help them understand God has a plan for the ages. Uh, he's still in control. Uh, I don't want people to be uninformed about what's going to happen. In fact, that's one of the things the Scripture says, is that we don't want you to be uninformed, we want you to be informed. And uh, and so the book really is a uh, a great read, but it also leads you like breadcrumbs to the truth at the end of the book where I talk about what Scripture says. So a lot of people perhaps our age will be able to use this book as a tool uh, to pass on to others, to introduce them to what the Bible says about the end times and about this uh, person called Antichrist.
1: <clears throat> at the end of the book, Jeff, you've got a little segment called Meet the Antichrist, 30 Intriguing Biblical Revelations About the Coming Man of Sin. Uh, Could you give us a um, a little look at that? Uh, What's going on there in your book?
2: Absolutely. And basically, Pat, what I did is I I picked 30 of the most compelling questions that people ask about the Antichrist. Where does he come from? What does the word mean? What's his character like? Uh, Could he be uh, a a woman? Could he be a homosexual? Uh, I talk about what his kingdom uh, will be like. Uh, talk about current prophecies that are uh, in formation about uh, the context of Antichrist reign, and many, many other questions there that I think people will find very compelling, very interesting. And the most important thing of all is that they all come directly from the Bible.
1: Uh, Jeff, what do you think when uh, people try and pick a human being as the Antichrist? I remember years ago it was Henry Kissinger, and uh, different people are referred to— Uh, Where does all that come from?
2: Well, basically, I think it comes from uh, Revelation 13, where it says that uh, those who who have insight and wisdom will be able to understand who the Antichrist is based on this number 666. And so people have taken that number. uh, They've used, used what's called a gematria, which is assigning numerical value to Hebrew equivalent of of names, and so they've come up. It's been everybody from John F. Kennedy to Ronald Reagan to Bill Clinton, Henry Kissinger, as you mentioned, Barack Obama, and it's basically people want to know who the Antichrist is, so they try to figure it out based on the numerical value of their name. However, uh, the Bible tells us that we, prior to the rapture, will not know who the Antichrist is, and so... uh, to try to identify him in that, in that sense really is futile. Uh, certainly different leaders perhaps have exhibited characteristics that are like the coming Antichrist, uh, but Scripture tells us that, that only those who are participating in that seven-year period will be able to identify who this person is, because he won't come to prominence until after the Church has been raptured by Jesus Christ.
1: Jeff, what do you want people to take from your book?
2: You know, basically, kind of, I want them to to really be awakened or, or awoken to th- this idea of the Antichrist, the fact that he is uh, the major pr- player in Bible prophecy, apart from Jesus Christ. Uh, for them to know what God has planned for the end times, to lead them to a place in the Bible that few people go to, which is the Book of Revelation, and to help explain a lot of that for them. Uh, to know that God triumphs over evil, and for us to really motivate to tell others about the message of Scripture, the message of Jesus. And then finally, just to be a tool. Uh, Take this book and use it as a tool. Tell others about it so that they can know, too, about what God is doing in the age and help us understand really what's happening right now. How is Antichrist's future strategy perhaps being laid down right now?
1: What can you tell us about Main Thing Ministries?
2: Yeah, Main Thing Ministries, uh, I started in in 2000. It's uh, my writing and speaking ministry basically designed to help empower people uh, with scripture by putting it in a language that they can understand. So uh, helping make disciples uh, through teaching the Bible.
1: What did your years at Dallas Theological Seminary mean to you? Oh man, they they were the
2: foundation of my theological education. Uh, uh, there were four grueling years I studied under some of the greats Pentecost and Hendricks and Walbert and and, Ryrie, and all these guys who were there I really invested in me to be able to understand the Bible in such a way that I could explain it to others, and so it's really been the launching pad of my teaching and writing ministry, and so I have an enormous degree of gratitude to Dallas, and I've been able to speak there many times.
1: Jeff, do you have um, a recommendation for people who struggle in finding some pattern in reading the Bible? Uh, what do you tell them? Do you have a, a hint or a tip?
2: Yeah, I tell them first of all, get a get a Bible that's in a language uh, that is contemporary, one that you can understand. Perhaps an you know, older translation might not resonate as much. And then just begin reading in the Gospels. I think the Gospels are a great place to begin because it is a story form, and you learn about Jesus Christ. And of course, the Gospels take you to the birth of the church, and the birth of the church takes you to Paul's epistles. And so, the more you read, really, God, and the Holy Spirit illumines that, makes that come alive for you. And so the the first step, though, is just getting into it, reading a little bit, and uh, God will whet your appetite for more.
1: I want you to talk in the closing 40 seconds about the Holy Spirit and our relationship to Him. What do do you tell us? What should we know about the Holy Spirit?
2: Well, the Holy Spirit is God's presence in us. The Bible tells us that He lives within us, that He bears witness, that we are children of God. He, He actually does make the Scripture come alive for us. Uh, he convicts us of sin, he's our conscience, uh, he leads us, he guides us in our daily lives, he gives the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all those uh, fruit of the Spirit, and, and he also fills us, which means he empowers us to live and to overcome the things that we face today, and so that's why we don't have to have fear about the Antichrist, because the Holy Spirit has already penned the Scripture for us, and we can read what he has said, and that'll resonate with our minds and hearts.
1: Jeff Kinley has been our guest. Interview with the Antichrist. What a read. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Our guest in that first segment was Jeff Kinley. Interview with the Antichrist. That's the name of his new book. It's quite a read. Uh, Lissy Reno has written a book, The Heart of Your Teen. Her mother, Amy, is with us in Wheaton, Illinois. The heart of your teen, an insider look at the parent-teen relationship. Uh, Amy, welcome. How are you?
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Tell me more about Lissy. She sounds like quite a young lady.
3: She is quite a young lady, and I'm very proud of her. So Lissy is a student at Lipscomb University in Nashville, and she has had a heart, I guess, starting really at – uh, she took a gap year in between her high school years and college, and the Lord really impressed upon her heart um, a desire to start working with our ministry as well. And we have a ministry, Visionary Family Ministries, where my husband and I and our family go around and speak, do a lot of seminars for parents. And uh, Lissy came to us and said, You know, people are talking to the parents in this family discipleship movement, but really no one's talking to the teenagers. And so that kind of motivated her to get more involved in our ministry. And she started with just writing a devotional for teenagers, really encouraging them about taking seriously their faith at home, because really the hardest place to be a Christian is in our own home. (laughs) And um, so that started her involvement in our ministry. And then Our publisher got a hold of her and said, you know, what we would really like you to do is think about writing a book for parents to help them understand uh, what's going on with their teenagers. And that was kind of an intimidating project for her to take on. Um, But as we really prayed about it, she wanted to step in and do it. So that is kind of how Heart of Teen, uh, the book Heart of Your Teen, uh, came to be.
1: Amy, what do you think are the biggest challenges to the parent-teen relationship?
3: Mm. Well, there there are, it's, first of all, it's a hard time. It's a hard time as your teenager is transitioning into adult adulthood. And I think it's important to understand that it's both hard for the teenager and for the parent. But a lot of the challenges occur when there's a real relationship breakdown in those years. And I think as a parent, we understand, we say, you know, when you feel like you're talking to your teenager and you're just talking to a wall, like nothing is getting through. Well, the reality is you are talking to a wall often and nothing is getting through because they have put up some barriers. They're not really willing to listen anymore. And what Lissy did is she not only spoke from her own experience going through those teenage years, but she also interviewed teenagers Um, from all different types of families and really kind of talk to them about what did your parents do that was helpful and what did your parents do that really kind of hindered and prevented um, that relationship from growing during those years. Because I also think there's a lie out there in culture that you're just supposed to accept that your teenagers aren't going to listen to you and that they're supposed to listen to other people. And parents kind of believe that and teenagers believe that. And really what we... We'd like to challenge families that that really isn't the biblical path, that God does want us to be connected with our teenagers. Um, he wants parents to be disciples still in their teenagers' lives. And Lissy makes a point over and over in her book that relationship has to occur before discipleship. So a lot of parents spend a lot of time lecturing their kids or trying to get their points across, but really they need to step back. And if the relationship's been broken, that's what needs to be worked on first.
1: Amy <clears throat> Amy Reno is the mother of Lissy Reno, the book, The Heart of Your Teen. <clears throat> Lissy says that even growing up in a Christian home, uh, she had an extremely difficult time. Uh, what do you think she meant by that?
3: I think she just meant that there were, um, in those teenagers there were a lot of, there was, con- there's plenty of conflict, plenty of things that, uh, you know, daily, we had to work through. It wasn't like, uh, that there was, we were constantly dealing with different issues, you know? And I think that sometimes people think that, especially, you know, we come from a kind of a ministry family and, and her, she always says these stories, you know, when she went to school in other settings, she was always praised for being so mature and, um, kind of like hitting the ball out of the park like people she was very impressive in all those different settings but at home where her real character her real character was coming out in the sense that all of us at home when we go home we kind of let down our guards right and we Mm -hmm. have more issues with anger we have more issues people at home see the real you and so this constant like she'd come home and there would be real problems here and character things that we were working on with her here and and it's not just all her. She was our first daughter going through high school compared to our older son. And so we were dealing with a lot of different issues with her than we dealt with our son. And so we weren't always making the right choices as well. But her kind of point is, like, a lot of conflict was happening inside the home. And she, when she speaks on this, she'll say, you know, I don't know. Everyone else tells me I'm so great. Mom and Dad, why don't you just, you know, hop on the bandwagon and agree with everyone else, you know? And it's not our place to agree with everyone else's parents. We are trying to prepare her. Um, at, uh, at, we are the ones who are dealing with the character issues that need to be dealt with. And uh, that dynamic, I think, does make it hard for um, families to keep keep pressing in and to realize that conflict isn't a bad thing in the sense that conflict is often what pulls you closer as you work through those problems, not to expect that conflict shouldn't exist.
1: Amy, tell us your thoughts on how to encourage openness between parents and teens. That's a key word, isn't it? Openness. Right.
3: Yes. I think it's so important as a parent to realize that your teen still very much needs you, even if they Mm -hmm. are acting like they don't. And for me as a mom, I've always tried to understand what speaks love and affection to my teenagers, which is very different from when they were littler. So I found some of the key things is really being interested in what they're interested in and to keep communicating and trying to enter into their world. So I'm building a relationship. So they don't think that my relationship is all about, telling them what they need to do or let's just talk about where you're gonna to go to college and all these things are important to me. Am I as a parent really invested in what is currently important to them? It's important that we just view our teens as understanding that God sees them for valuable for who they are right now, not just who they are becoming. And we as parents seem to have that same mindset. I think it's so easy as parents that get caught up in those high school years with uh the importance of scholarships and test scores and, again, their future that were really not present in what's going on right now. And so that really helps to keep openness when you're present in your child's life, when you're trying to figure out, okay, what communicates affection to them right now? Because when you're building that, you're starting to build a relationship, which then will give you a ground for discipleship and the things that are important for you to be a part of in their life.
1: <clears throat> Amy, Uh, I want you to uh, uh, talk about the lecture mode that parents (laughs) slip into. Um, Do you think there's an alternative to the lecture mode?
3: Well, yes, there absolutely is. And it's interesting because Lucy really addresses this well in her book, that even though she did not like it when you – we as parents administered consequences, real consequences for bad behavior um, or, you know, bad choices. The reality is you don't, when you're in lecture mode, you are actually paying a great relational cost is what we like to say. And Lucy and I would have a lot of conflicts where I, what I should have done instead of entering into a big argument and getting emotional and getting into that mode, I should have laid down a clear consequence early earlier in the situation and stepped away from it. And it's so often, Lissy would get, and I would get into these things and we would, I would say to her, you know, Lissy, we just paid way too big of relational price for that, you know, because I love you and I'm committed to you. I really want to have a good relationship with you. And what we just did right here just really had a huge negative impact on our relationship. So then I would say, you know, I'm sorry for doing that. What I needed to do was lay down a clear consequence and just disengage from the argument, disengage from the lecture. And it's interesting that she would then agree, you know, and again, not that she liked the consequences per se, but she actually could accept the consequences a lot better than the emotional relational costs that we would pay for getting into these huge fights. So, um, you know, obviously each teenager is different. I mean, she is, a, I think sometimes mother to daughter is very different from mother to son and father to son. But I really, definitely with mother daughter relationships, I really encourage moms, you know, step back, set a consequence if you need to, but really try to realize if you're paying a relational price when you um, get into these heated arguments
1: time and time again. Amy Reno is with us from Wheaton, Illinois. Uh, talking about her daughter's book, The Heart of Your Teen, uh, here's a big one, Amy. How about teens that don't want to go to church, don't want to grow in their mm-hmm. faith, want to hug that pillow on Sunday morning rather than mm-hmm. rather than hugging the pew at church? <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, what can you tell us on this one? Well, I'd
3: say there's a couple different uh, levels of that. It's important to keep in mind, I was a ther- I'm was i a therapist as my teen, I did a lot of therapy with teenagers, and I always would tell parents, always remember that a teenager doesn't go anywhere that they don't want to go to. And so this is important to keep in mind when it comes to this church issue. There's a big difference between the teenager who you have to prod over and over to get out of bed and get into the car and get to church, but they actually <laughs> do it, versus the one who refuses under any circumstances to go. And my point is your teenager, even if they don't want to go, if they are getting up and getting in the car and getting there and they might have a bad attitude the whole day, just remember, parents, that there's some part of them that is wanting and willing to do it because if they, there was no part of them that wanted or willing to do it, they would not be there at all. And I think often parents have higher expectations, like they want them to, whether you know, behave or be more positive or not have this negative attitude, but really it's okay just to accept that that's where they're at. If they're willing to go, be thankful for that, really, because there is a part of them that still wants to be there. Now, if you have the teenager that just absolutely is refusing and, um, you know, and there may be other issues going on in their life, but they just won't go no matter what, well, they really don't want to be there and i would just suggest to you there's a couple different ways of handling it but the first and foremost is just to pray for their hearts you know you don't you can't take on the responsibility for your child's relationship with god that is going to be theirs and it's your learning to understand in these teenage years that as a parent you can do a lot of things but at the end of the day their your child's faith has to be in between them And God, and and you are not the author and perfecter of their faith. Jesus is the author and perfecter of their faith. So you may have to just accept that this is the situation right now. I mean, I know other families that say, you know, as long as you're living in our house, this is something we do as a family, and this is important. And I don't think that's wrong to have a boundary like that. I just think parents need to pray and figure out what the Lord wants them to do for their teenager in that situation.
1: Now, Amy... What about technology and social media? Mm -hmm. Big issue with parents. Uh, What can you tell us?
3: Well, I thought I learned a lot from Lissy's book in this area and the interviews that she did. Now, we we are not a no-technology family, and we're not a no-social-media family, but in general, we have stayed, shied away from it more. My oldest, for example, my oldest child just, chose not to do it, so he's never been on any social media. But Lizzie was different, and she did want to be a part of Instagram, and we allowed that. And the reality is there's a lot of different social media, and it requires a lot of wisdom as parents to navigate it, um, not only for their family but for each individual child. I mean, your children can respond differently, and you need to keep that in mind. It's not like one rule should apply for all your kids in, in high school But this is the research that she found as she talked to kids, which I found fascinating. Most of the kids that she talked to, even though they were very connected to social media, said that they would never allow Snapchat for their own children and that they might allow something like Instagram in high school. So I found it so interesting that these teenagers, when asked, what would you recommend when you have children, most of the time the answer was, keep social media away from them. Mm. Isn't that fascinating?
1: Mm. Interesting. Even,
3: even though they use it themselves, but they were keenly aware of the negative effects. And they were basically saying, when we have kids, we're not going to allow them to have this stuff. So,
1: My guest, everyone- <clears throat> My guest is Amy Renow talking about her daughter, Lissy, <clears throat> The Heart of Your Teen. Quite a book. Uh, we've got another segment with Amy. She's in Wheaton, Illinois. Stay with us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. My guest is Amy Renow. She's in Wheaton, Illinois, the book, The Heart of Your Teen, that her daughter Lissy wrote. Uh, I'm curious because Lissy has five younger siblings. Uh, What's her relationship with them? Is, Is Lissy a great hero to those five younger kids?
3: You know, she really, really is, and we are really thankful that both her and her older brother, even though they've been away at school, how intentional they are with their younger siblings. In fact, the kids just so look forward to having them home, and they're so sad when they're we're gone, and we just couldn't be more thankful for that. Um, and I really, it's just a testimony to God's faithfulness, because we really tried as parents all those years to say, you know, you always need to put family first, like family above friends. And a phrase you would hear a lot in our home is that, you know, your siblings are your best friends. Are you treating them like your best friends? And just to have our older two go away to school and still have such a heart for their younger siblings and um, really be invested with them when they come back. They're so intentional about taking the people will take her daughters two sisters out separately to Starbucks or just spend individual time with them and these things just really bring such a sense of joy to us as her, as their parents.
1: Amy, what does Lissy write about teens growing up in a sex saturated world?
3: Um but she is she is really encouraged in her book how important it is for teenagers to talk to their parents about these types of issues like this sex saturated, uh, world and sexual relationships. And she has a great story in there about how uncomfortable and awkward it was for her as, uh, I think she was even junior high at this point to kind of feel like she should talk to dad about these feelings of having a crush on a boy. And she, talks about this pit in her stomach and how she did not want to do that. And she began to realize that it really was spiritual attack to prevent her from really opening up to her dad who loves her and wants to help guide her in, in, this, in this area of relationships and eventually finding, uh, you know, the man that she's going to marry, uh, that she just how much it took to her to overcome to talk to her parents. Because really, in culture, there's nowhere, sadly, that kind of points teenagers that, you know, parents are the people that you should talk to about these things. They know you the best, and they love you the best. So in her book, she really encourages teenagers to take risks and have those uncomfortable conversations with your parents to help you navigate this sex saturated culture.
1: Amy, I'm going to tell you a little story about Mike Shashevsky. Uh, the basketball <laughs> co- the basketball coach at Duke. He had three daughters, and uh-huh. when and when it time, came time for these girls that are getting serious about a man, young man, uh, he simply asked the girl girls one question: Does this guy you're seeing make you a better person? Mm-hmm. And then he reversed it and said to the girls: Do you make him a better person? And mm-hmm. and he said if both if if both questions are yes. Well then, go go on ahead, go forward.
3: Mm, uh, that's so, great. So that's
1: system. so that's a that's a even in the dating situation, is this guy you're seeing uh, make you a better person, and do you make him a better person? If so, well, continue seeing each other. So that is pretty good. Pretty good little insight, I thought. I
3: thought that yeah, that is fantastic. Um, I yeah, I think we could use that ourselves. I mean, I think that's so important, and my oldest is engaged in, uh, to be married in the fall, and that has definitely been a hot topic of just the talking about that, you know, is does this person, you know, make you a better person? And we also add, does this person help you draw closer in your relationship to God? It's very similar, but um, yeah, those are really important questions.
1: Um, I want you to talk about standards in the home. Uh, I just mm-hmm. I just underland that word standards and, and and along with it would be family rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you expand on that?
3: Oh, yeah, it's uh, I think that's a broad topic, but I'll try to narrow it down with a, an example that would be applicable, especially in my relationship with my daughter. I think for us, standards in the teenage years had a lot to do with the clothing that she was wearing and mm. having to explain to her that um some of the styles that she might see her friends wear that that we were not going to allow that, you know, while she was um living in our home that, you know, that might be okay for your friend, but we're we're not going but that's not a way we feel comfortable with you dressing. And mm-hmm. I would say and one thing I think that was helpful as a mom, I would you know I would say to her, Listen, when you own your own life and you are out on your own, you can dress however, whatever way you want to dress and I will love you and you will always be welcome here and I will affirm you and you can make all of those choices but right now as long as you're in our home and we're paying for your life these are the standards that we have for the way you should dress and so you need to abide by those standards and know that this is not forever, you will at some point have the freedom to choose what standards that you want to live under. But, you know, we own, we own, (laughs) I and that might be, I I use that phrase, we own a part of your life right now. We're paying for your life. So we get to set those standards right now, you know. But it just helps them to realize, no, it's not forever. um, But part of understanding and appreciating all that your parents are doing for you is respecting the standards that your parents have.
1: Amy, A uh, quick little story. We uh, uh, we have nineteen children. Uh, oh wow! Uh, Fourteen we adopted uh, from four foreign countries over a ten-year period. Uh, there was wow. one. There was one year when sixteen of our children were all teenagers uh, at the same time for one year. Oh
3: my goodness!
1: Oh my goodness! <clears throat> That's the year I realized why some animals eat their young. Uh, <laughs> And so, Amy, here's the deal with with our children. From the time they were very young, we made sure they knew that at 18, they were leaving the house. And they were, Mm -hmm. A, going to college, B, going into the military, or C, going into the workplace.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, They
1: were not going to hang at the house and play video games for the next five years. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were going in one of three directions, now we didn't spring it on them when they were seniors in high school. Oh, they they grew up knowing this—that uh, at mm-hmm. eighteen you're leaving. Now you're, you'll come back for Christmas and Thanksgiving. You know, you mm-hmm. will we'll always be here uh, waiting for those special occasions. But mm-hmm. uh, you're uh, you're going into adulthood at eighteen, mm-hmm. just like we did. Um, so anyway, mm-hmm. I just passed that along. Uh, mm-hmm to get your reaction.
3: I think that's what I really appreciate about is what you're saying, how you kind of prepared them mm-hmm. all along the way. I think that's so important because I think those are conversations that, um, often parents aren't having you know, along the way and people are kind of broadsided, <laughs> you know, at 18. And I also think it's so important. I, I listen, I talk about this a lot. She had, did a gap year in between, um, before going to college. So her path was a little unique. Uh, But the point is a lot of times people just assume that college is the next step and it often isn't the best next step for a lot of people. So it's good for kids to feel like there's not just one option, you know, Mm -hmm. but we actually, we actually do something a little different and you may or may not disagree with this, but, and in this culture, it's probably a little controversial, but we, have different conversations with our sons than we do with our daughters, and the point that we feel like our sons need to understand that as future heads of households that they really need to establish themselves and, you know, like you said, the A, B, C choices. They need to uh, uh, get out in the world and establish themselves, whether they're going to be living on their own or they're going to have a family someday that they are establishing new households. But with our daughters, we actually have a little different Well, we say to them that they will always be welcome here. Um, we don't want them to feel like they have to live independently in the sense that um, we do feel like that's part of this feminism mindset that women are supposed to. And if you go past the 1960s, there wasn't, I mean, there wasn't a mindset that girls always had to leave their, their home, that they it was normal if they wanted to stay back and Help their parents and work on the
1: farm. So we. My guest has been Amy Reno, mother of Lissy Reno, the book, The Heart of Your Teen. We got a wrap up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Well, thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Jeff Kinley from his home in Arkansas, talked about his book, Interview with the Antichrist. And then Amy Reno uh, in Wheaton, Illinois, uh, talked about her daughter's book, The Heart of Your Teen. We're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, folks. And you can help by going up to the website, OrlandoDreamers.com, and just uh, register uh, your feelings. Uh, if you think it's a good idea, uh, we want to know that. And uh, if you might have an interest in a season ticket plan, if we're successful with this venture, we'll just tell us that as well. OrlandoDreamers.com. We'll be back next weekend for more right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead.